This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, Let's quickly go to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, the very first chapter, please. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." The book of Hebrews Hebrews has often been called the fifth gospel. No other uh, epistle magnifies the present ministry of Christ more than the book of Hebrews. The writer, uh, whoever the writer was, and we can't be sure of that, some say it was Luke, uh, some say it was Barnabas, others it was Clement, and many more say it was the apostle Paul, but we're not quite sure. But even though we don't know who wrote the book, we know who they wrote it to, to the Hebrew Christians, specifically for the Hebrew believers. That was his target audience. The reason why is because they were beginning to doubt the claims of Christianity. They were in danger of backsliding, chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Some had even stopped going to church altogether, chapter 10, 25. Others had stopped growing in Christ. Some had become entangled with sin, and the weight of sin had weighed them down, and they had quit running the race. Some were seduced by false doctrine. Why? How did this happen? What was going on here with these Hebrew Christians? Well, first of all, they were second-generation believers. They came to Christ through those who had been with Christ. In chapter 2, and verse 1, it says, Therefore we must give them more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And so this was a second generation uh, believers. Uh, Also, they were under tremendous pressure and persecution. And this was coming uh, from their family, uh, from their former friends, even from the state. There were places it was illegal. Uh, Judaism uh, was treated as a proper religion. But when it came to Christianity, it was treated just as a sect. And, uh, and so it was a very, very difficult time. You have to understand that uh, for a Jew to become a Christian, particularly in, in that era, 
difficult enough today, but in that era, uh, it simply meant that your family more than likely would completely disown you, disinherit you. Uh, it would be a shameful thing. It would be something that would be an embarrassment, a humiliation to the whole family. And in fact, they, they might even uh, count you as dead and maybe even hold a funeral service as if you were dead to them completely. And so this was a very difficult thing. It would be difficult within the community. Uh, it would be difficult if you're in business. So all of these things together was making it very, very difficult. Socially, uh, they would be ostracized, and religiously, they would be excommunicated. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't be allowed in the, in the synagogue again, <coughs> never mind the temple. So this would be difficult. Civilly, uh, then they would be like second-class citizens. So this was a very big price to pay if you wanted to be a Hebrew follower of Jesus Christ. All that would be familiar to them, their family, their friends, their religion, their way of life was now completely gone. Their whole lives would have to begin all over again. So for those who had taken the very brave step of becoming a Christian, a believer in Christ, then the persecution and the pressure was beginning to get to them. And some of them were beginning to wonder, had they done the right thing? They took this great step of being a follower of Christ, and bit by bit, all of their life that they had ever known had come to an end and they had to start all over again. So this was a very, very difficult period for them. The religion they had left, Judaism was a religion that had a structure. It, it had a system. It had something tangible. Uh, they had a magnificent temple, probably the most magnificent religious temple in all of the Roman Empire. It was a thing of great beauty, and it was majestic. It was something that the Jew was so proud of. At any opportunity, they would love to go to the temple. This was something that they held very dear to them. And of course, it had synagogues, and it had priests, it had scribes, it had sacrifices, and it had rituals, and it had vestments, and it had all kinds of ceremonies. But Christianity didn't have any of that. They would meet in their homes. The only two things was required of them was to meet together and, of course, to break bread together, as we, will, we have done this morning, and to get water baptized. No vestments worn, no magnificent temple, not even a synagogue. They had none of those things. No priests, no, human sac no animal sacrifices to bring before God, no offerings like that to bring, none of those things. And so... All they had literally was Christ and his gospel. That's all they had. And the apostle Paul said as far as the gospel was concerned, to the Greeks it was just foolishness. To the thinkers it was foolishness. But to the Jews it was just a stumbling block. Could this be the real thing? Perhaps they were mistaken. Certainly society thought so. Their friends thought so. Their families most certainly thought so. Could they be all wrong and only themselves right? Was Jesus Christ truly the Son of God? Was he honestly the Savior of the world? So they're in a crisis of faith situation. And the danger was that some of them were returning to the old ways.
After all, it was to the Hebrews that God gave the sacred scriptures, was it not? Hmm? It was to the Hebrews that God gave the law by Moses. It was to the Hebrews that God gave the prophets. It was to the Hebrews that God gave a, a system of worship that would involve priests and sacrifices. It was to the Hebrews that God gave a, a pure religion. Not religion of worship and many gods, but one God. And now they were to believe that all of that was just a type. It was just a shadow, but Christ was now the substance. That's what they were to believe. But now that they were under pressure... And the tensions they had to face, now doubts were creeping in. And unbelief was beginning to threaten. And so walking by sight rather than walking by faith seemed to be an easier option. A softer option. They could be accepted back into their, what was their society again. To such a people as this, the writer wrote the book of Hebrews. In a world full of doubt, fear, confusion, the writer would lift up Jesus Christ. The writer would exalt the Lord Jesus. We too live in a world and in a society that is increasingly hostile to Christians. That is increasingly hostile to Christ himself, where Christ has just become a swear word, where they blaspheme his name continually. But we say Christ is the living son of the living God. Yes. We say that Christ is the Lord of glory. We say that Christ is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of all lords. Let them say that we're delusional. Let them say that we are bigots and intolerant bigots at that. But we say Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. We lift up Jesus continually, and that's what we are to do. So this book then becomes a contrast, a contrast between the good things of Judaism, and there was some good things in Judaism. We owe the Bible to the Hebrews, to the Jews. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have these scriptures. So there was some good things. But the writer here is talking about the better things of Christianity. Christianity is better. The key words are better, greater, more than. A better revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. A better hope, chapter 7, verse 19. Better priesthood, chapter 7, 20, 28. I'll not give you all the chapters. Better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, better possessions, better country, a better resurrection. Better, better, better. It's a book that glorifies Jesus. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the priests. Better than, greater than, more than. He has obtained a more excellent ministry than them all. Chapter 8, verse 6. And so in our generation, 
Because the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this book to the Hebrew Christians then, but actually it speaks to us today for a different reason. We're not under the same persecution or the same pressure they were under, but we have a different pressure and a different persecution. So therefore, we need to read the book of Hebrews. We need to look into this in our private devotions and see how the writer lifts up Christ and upholds Christ and all of it. And that's the best that we can do. We need to lift up Jesus. Greater than the prophets, it says in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2. Isaiah spoke of his birth. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Isaiah 9 and 6. Micah spoke of his birthplace, Micah 5 and 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And while the Old Testament prophets spoke of his coming, John, the gospel writer, spoke of his becoming, what he became, John 1 and 14. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. As believers today, we've got to focus more and more on the person of Jesus Christ. It will strengthen us as believers. It will keep us on the right track. And the more we delve into God's Word, and the more we see Jesus lifted up, the stronger we will be in this particular generation that's going to deny Him, that's going to deny Christianity, that's going to try to make us look foolish or ignorant or even wicked and intolerant and evil. We need to lift up Christ. Matthew 17 and 5, in the Mount of Transfiguration, God interrupts Peter while he was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Moses and Elijah were there. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, but hear him. He's greater than, he's better than, he's more than. Hebrews 1, verse 2, who has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. That's a big statement, isn't it? Sons of Jacob, they were heirs to individual plots of land uh, in the promised land. Abraham was heir to all of the promised land. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have given it to you. But Jesus Christ is heir to the whole world, to everything, to every nation, to every people. I'll give you the heathen as your inheritance, it says in the Psalms. He is appointed heir of all things. I like what John Phillips has to say about this. He said that Christ's claim to all things is not only inherited, but he has an inherent claim to all things. Christ's claim 
to all things is not only inherited, but he has an inherent claim to all things. In other words, Jesus has the right to all things because he created all things. Hebrews 1, 2. He made the worlds. He was the creator of the ends of the earth. Therefore, he has a right to it. He can inherit it because it's inherently his. Are you still with me? In Revelation chapter 5, well, let me just read this to you very, very briefly. Revelation 5, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I went much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Ah. So we know who he's talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this scroll, that by the way, when it was opened... The seven seals were seven judgments that was to come upon the earth. Many theologians say this scroll, this scroll is the title deeds to the earth. The title deeds to the earth. Some of you have paid out your mortgage and now the bank no longer holds your title deeds. You hold the title deeds. It belongs to you. And of course, you could sell that because it's yours and you have the title deeds. The title deeds is the evidence that it belongs to you wholly and completely. You paid the full price. And this earth belongs to the Lord. It's his, inherently his, because he was the creator. But he paid the price for us on this earth and he holds the deeds. Glory to God. We know the enemy, the devil, was the usurper. But at the end of the day, Christ holds the deeds. And he will come back again, and he will reclaim it for himself. Glory to God. And here's good news. Romans 8, 17. We are heirs, and we are joint heirs with Jesus. And all of what that means. Heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. Everything that belongs to him, we are heirs with him in that. You know, that alone is just a powerful uh, statement from the Apostle Paul. Beyond what we can even ask or think, it'll take all of eternity to unfold the full meaning and consequences of that one single statement that we are heirs and we're joint heirs with Jesus. There's three great offices in the Old Testament was the priest and the prophet and the king. Isn't that so? And the priest was the one who spoke on behalf of men to God. The prophets were the ones who spoke on behalf of God to men. And the king spoke for himself. 
Jesus, as a priest, spoke to God on behalf of men. John 17 is his great intercessory prayer. And in John 17, he's praying for us. He's praying for his church. Isn't it great that we have got an intercessor such as the Lord Jesus Christ himself who continually prays for us, seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us? Glory to God. It's lovely if a friend phones you and say, Brother, I'm praying for you today. Wonderful. Thank God for that. But isn't it greater to have Jesus Christ praying for us? His prayers are perfect, aren't they? In John 9, sorry, in John 17, 9 and 20, I pray not for these alone, but for those who believed their words. These alone was that group of disciples he had. But not just them, but for those who believed their word. We're still believing their word today, aren't we? The words they've written down on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter was prayed for by Jesus. Huh. Told him he was going to fail him. Told him he was going to deny him. But he says, I have prayed for you that your faith fails not. You will fail me. As a human being, you will fail me. <clears throat> but I pray that your faith doesn't fail. And when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. I pray for you that your faith doesn't fail. That deep down inner conviction that will not go away. I pray that that doesn't fail. Peter got restored, didn't he? became a mighty man of God. Jesus even prayed for those who executed him. He prayed for those who executed him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Jesus, as prophet, he spoke on behalf of God to man. In John chapter 8, Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself. As my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. Jesus spoke on behalf of God to men. In his Sermon on the Mount, he speaks as king. A king speaks for himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 14 times, you can count them, I counted them, 14 times he said words to this effect, it has been said, but I say unto you. 
But I say unto you, but I tell you, most assuredly, I say unto you, 14 times, and at the end of it, if you read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it said, he spoke with authority, not as the scribes. See, the rabbis constantly quoted other rabbis as their authority on any subject. In a court of law today, uh, lawyers often quote other cases as an authority. A precedent has been set. So rabbis would quote other rabbis as a precedent, as a set authority. But Jesus said, it has been said, I hear what you're saying, what they're saying, but I say unto you, not what some rabbis said to you, I say unto you. They said he speaks with authority, not as the scribes, he has his own authority. And they were amazed. I don't know who had the wonderful idea of putting the words of Christ in red in the New Testament. And I suppose you really should read the whole New Testament to get the context of those words that Jesus talked about. But even just reading those words alone and see the amazing, profound, deep questions and answers that he gave and answered is amazing. Even when he was just a boy, he startled those doctors at the temple, didn't he? They listened and he asked them questions and gave answers of his own authority. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than any king. He's greater than any priest. And Hebrews 1 verse 3 gives us a glimpse of his greatness. It says, who being the brightness of his glory. Who being the brightness of his glory. Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 5, Isaiah's vision of the Lord transcendent. Your king Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the robe of his train of his robe filled the whole temple. What a glorious sight Isaiah saw of the Lord himself lifted up, looking absolutely glorious, transcendent above all. Matthew 17, 1 to 3, we see the Lord transfigured before them, his face shining, his clothes shining. What a moment that must have been to see that, to see his very skin on his face glowing, noticeably, remarkably. Such was the power and the glory of God that was upon him as he spoke to Moses and Elijah things concerning his death. Revelation chapter 1. If you just quickly turn to that. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 10, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Theatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John, remember, had been with Jesus for over three years every day, had sat and leaned on his breast at the supper table, had touched him, had spoken to him, who saw him in the flesh, but he had never, ever seen Jesus like this. Yes, he saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone, but he'd never seen him like this before. What an image of the living Christ. And that's an image we've got to get of him ourselves in a world that denies him, that demotes him, that even at the best says, well, he was a good man. Or he was some kind of a prophet. No, he is the living son of God. And here he is in all of his splendor. No wonder John fell down at his feet as if dead. And we would do the same if we saw the Lord transformed. In Acts 26, we see the Lord convicting and confronting. Paul giving his testimony about that day on the road to Damascus. And how that light shone. And how in that moment a voice spoke. And in seconds he was absolutely transformed. No longer the persecutor. Now he'd be the preacher. No longer wanting to put Christians into jail and to see them stoned to death but now wanting to bless them and feed them and change their lives with this encounter with Christ that he had. (coughs) Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the express image of his person, In Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. Who being in the morphe of God. That means who being an inner essence. God. Did not consider robbery to be equal to God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Schema, outward appearance, that means. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. The God-man made an express image of his person. There was a few times when a transfiguration was one of them. It was as if God just drew the curtain slightly back to see the glory and the power and the might and the majesty of Christ. He just looked like a man because he was a man, but he was God. Who was it said he was so much like God as though he wasn't man? He was so much like man as though he wasn't God because he was the God-man, the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, he is the creator who spoke this world into existence. All of that power was released by his word. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. All that creative power to create the universe was released by the words of his mouth. This is the mighty Christ that we serve. Let us not diminish him, underestimate him. Let not the world reduce him. This is the glorious Christ that we serve today. Then notice this. After talking about his brightness and his glory and his creative power, then suddenly it says in those same verses, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins. <laughs> See what happened here? It's gone from creator to Calvary, from creation to the cross. The writer brought them right back to the cross. He's lifting up Christ. He's exalting Jesus. He's making sure they get the image of Christ back into their hearts and minds again, that he's mighty and powerful, but he brings it all back down to the cross. Because for all of us and for them, that's where it all began, wasn't it? Right at the cross. That's where it began for me. I don't know about you. You're sitting looking at me. It began at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. Glory to God. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. King of kings and Lord of all lords. Amen. See, the book of Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago for Hebrew Christians who were beginning to doubt the claims of Christianity. But it's written for us today, for Christians today, of whom many are beginning to doubt the claims of Christianity because science has become the God of this world. 
And many a young student goes to university or goes to college and he holds up the Bible in one hand and the science book in the other hand and he feels there's a conflict. Which way is he going to go? And sadly many opts for the voice of science. But if we can show them Christ in all of his resplendent glory, in all of his power, if I can use a borrowed phrase today, in all of his awesomeness, and if they get the hold of that, they'll say, yes, science is wonderful. It's great. Yes, there's a lot of things that are absolutely true in science. But this Bible trumps everything. This is the word of God. Science will continually change because men will continually discover and rediscover. But this book doesn't change. And he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can count on this, can't we? Never changes. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you today that in the midst of all of this that we've been sharing, you bring us right back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You bring us back to salvation. You bring us back to redemption. You bring us back to the message of the bloodshed. And we thank you for that. Lord, our lives have been forever changed because of the cross. And so, Lord, today we want to see Jesus high and lifted up where men will be drawn unto him. We thank you that you drew us by your spirit and you saved us and you put our names into the book of life. Hallelujah. So we're grateful today. We thank you from the depths of our hearts for your grace and your mercy and your love, your forgiveness and your peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.